What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest, guitarist extraordinaire, vocalist extraordinaire, my friend for, God, almost 25 years, the legendary Warren Haynes. Thank you very much for doing this, Warren. It's like such an honor to, to speak to you. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you asked me. How, how long have we known each other? What year did we meet? 1993? I think so. You were 16. Uh, was that 93? Was that yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, it was when we were preparing for that uh, Bloodline record. Right. Uh, that's when we met, right? Uh, yeah, and you came up to Utica, New York, to our little rehearsal studio. You must have been like, what is a Utica, New York, and why am I going... Why am I?" <laughs> working in a rehearsal studio above a pizza place right? yeah it, it was cool though I, I enjoyed it and uh that part of new york reminds me of Asheville, where i'm from you know it's uh, it's very similar yeah you know new york you know when people talk about new york they always they always assume the city but the, the rest of the state and you've you've been a resident of new york state for a long time you know the rest of the state's very rural it's very green it's lots of hills and you know it's it's not what you it's not giant tall buildings and you know yeah, and it's a huge state, so there's there's everything. There's a little bit of everything or a lot of everything uh, all over New York State. Uh, I have friends from home uh, in, in Western North Carolina that ask me, well, what's it like where you live? I'm like, well, it's a lot like Western North Carolina. Where I live, if you go five minutes past my house, it's all horse ranches and stuff, you know? And, uh, and it's nice because I lived in the in the city for a long, long time. And I kept an apartment in the city even after I moved out here uh, up until a few years ago. But these days, I'm kind of uh, happy to be back where I started, so to speak. Yeah, it's nice. You know, I mean, it's it's nice to simplify. And um, I mean, you you've been active in the music business for what forty years? Yeah, starting around 1980. Yeah, that's that's about right. Doing sessions. I, I was. I was playing, I started playing in bars and clubs and stuff when I was 14, as you did, I don't know, uh, maybe even earlier for you, but um, but I started touring on a serious level around 1980, so it's hard to believe that that's 40 years ago. You know, I've, um, I've had Paul Stanley on the show, uh, Kev Moe, have, I've had a bunch of, you know, you know, all types of musicians, and the one question that I've, I've had in common is, is it we all kind of start the same way, you know, we're, we catch the music bug somehow, you know? So what was it for you? Did you come from a musical family? How did the guitar come into your orbit? And, uh, you know, when did you start noticing you had a, you had a gift for this? Well, my dad, uh, didn't sing professionally, but he had a beautiful voice. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he sang and, and, and my dad's still alive. Uh, but he sang like Hank Williams. And when I was growing up and he could yodel and all that stuff, but he wouldn't sing in front of people. He was right. shy about that. Um, but my two older brothers had great taste in music. Uh, so I was turned on to a lot of great music from the very beginning. Uh, the first sound that I remember making an impression on me was black gospel music. Uh, coming over the radio in North Carolina when I was probably five or six. Right. Uh, then I think James Brown, uh, for me, I started singing before I started playing guitar. So thanks to my older brothers, I was hearing James Brown, The Four Tops, The Temptations, Stevie Wonder, Wilson Pickett, uh, eventually Otis Redding. And all this stuff uh, made a huge impact on me. And I would literally sit in my room and try to sing like that. Right. But then one day my brother, uh, my oldest brother, got a Sly and the Family Stone record. And the next thing you know, it was Hendrix. Uh, and then I was hearing Hendrix and Cream and Johnny Winter. And I think that's really what pushed me toward the guitar. My oldest brother had an acoustic guitar. And I played it more than he did, so I think for my 12th birthday, my dad got me an electric guitar. You know, um, was the Allman Brothers an early influence, well before you actually got to be a member of the Allman Brothers? Was that, was that, in, your, was that in your orbit as well? Absolutely, yeah. 
my oldest brother had the first Allman Brothers album when it came out in 1969. And I, I had not picked up guitar yet. I was nine years old, but I loved the, the sound of it. I loved Greg's voice. And I, uh, it made an impression. And by the time Fillmore East came out a couple of years later in 71, everybody around the South had that record. Right. And that's when I was just starting to get infatuated with guitar. I had already heard uh, Clapton and, and Hendrix and Johnny Winter and Jeff Beck and some stuff. And now was starting to hear the Alma Brothers. Um, and it made a huge impression. And right. I was, again, lucky to have my two older brothers because they had great taste and they would steer me away from stuff that they didn't want me to listen to. Right. So, I was force fed a lot of wonderful music, you know, and, and it was great. But I, I by the time, uh, you know, a couple years later had rolled around all my little circle of friends, we were all playing guitar and we were all teaching each other how to play. And we were all hearing the Fillmore East record. And it was just what an amazing record to learn from because it's all long guitar solos. <laughs> right. It, 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 you know, I always found like my favorite kind of, you know, my favorite Cream records and Allman Brothers records, the ones with the big, long solos. Because yeah. I sit there, put it on, jam along to it. And, you know, just by osmosis, I would figure, I would figure things out. Um, what, was, what was your first electric guitar? What was the, 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 when you went from the acoustic that was laying around the house to the electric? Uh, my dad bought me a Norma guitar and a Norma nice. amp. Yeah. Now, you probably know those. Most people would not. Uh, yes. One was $49 and one was $59. I don't, I don't which, remember which, but Norma guitar, Norma amp. Uh, he bought them at the local hardware store. Right. <laughs> you know, God forbid he would go to a music store, but, you know, right. um, you know, we were working class people, to say the least, and, and uh, I was lucky that I had that guitar. And my dad, every year when he could see that I wasn't going to stop, he would get me a little better guitar or a little better amp. You know, right. uh, I got a, after that, I got a Lyle copy of an SG. Right. And a big amp through the Sears catalog. Uh, I lied to my dad and told him, I told him I wanted the bass amp. Because it was bigger, it was bigger than the guitar app, and he said, "But that's a bass app." And I said, "Yeah, but BB King plays through a bass app." And right. I think I made that up. I, I don't think he ever did. But yeah, right. I, I wanted the bigger amp, so yeah. I told him that, and he bought me the Sears bass amp. I played through that, and then my first decent guitar was a uh, an SG Junior, right? Uh, and and a plush amp. You remember plush amps? Ronnie Wood used to play. Yeah, plus. he was one of the Jeff Beck was one of the first endorsers of of, and they were padded like yeah. custom, but they were not. They were from New York. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I had one of those, and it had two fifteens in it instead of four twelves. Uh, it wasn't very loud, and it wouldn't get very dirty, so I traded it. But in hindsight, it probably just needed tubes or something. You know, it was uh, we didn't know anything about that back then you know if your amp didn't sound right you sold it <laughs> well you know it's interesting because you know i remember i mean like the first one of my first my first amp was a dean markley k20 it was yeah. about 69 dollars. and my first guitar was a chiquita which was short because i started yeah. in a kid and when i was started to jam with my dad's band and started to sit in I, I, I didn't care what it was. It just had to be loud. Right. Like we, we grew up in the in the in the time where it was like, I don't care. If the amp's bigger, we're good. You know, hundred watts, it's you're gonna you're gonna be heard, you know? And and, and you know, and, and people don't understand that back then also the drums were so loud that right. just to get the guitar above the drums, you had to have a decent amp as far as volume was concerned because if we're all sitting in this little environment and the drums are bashing away and you had your little small amp that sounded good in your bedroom, you couldn't hear it. Couldn't hear it, right. So it, it was like, just give me something loud to play through. And uh, it But it was all about getting above the bashing, you know. 
Right. It's interesting, you know, because I talked to, you know, I've been talking to some, uh, you know, younger players. And now, you know, the, the narrative is small amp in your monitors and everything is isolated, you know. And I always just say, like, a deluxe reverb. You know, you get you get a good drummer. It, you're not going to be hurt over that. You know what I mean? Like and I always said, like when I did club shows, two twins, and, and they they're just astounded that you were able to use two twins. I go, well, if it was a bigger show, I'd use two twins and two supers. You know, and yeah. because I just wanted it to be loud. And you know, do you you know you've always subscribed to the to the to the high headroom guitar sound, which I always loved. You know, you know, clean. You roll your volume down. You want you want you know you want it a little bit more distorted. You you push the volume up. You know it's it's not like a it's not you're not channel switching any you know the the amp. You know, um, what what prompted you like after you got the SG Junior? You know like like how did you start you know start like narrowing in what kind of tone and sound you were you 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 know going for? Who who what's your like your favorite guitar tones that you were trying to emulate at first? Well. Uh the, the sound on Live Cream Volume 2, mm -hmm. which is not the more popular of the Live Cream albums, uh, but that's the one that I listened to the most. Right. That was, that was a great sound. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, Dwayne's sound and, and Dickie's sound as well, but I was more uh, drawn to Dwayne's sound on the Fillmore East. Right. Um, all, the, all the Gibson tones, e even though, you know, I love Johnny Winter. Uh, yeah. But I never had a Firebird till the past 20 years. Uh, right. You know, I, I didn't grow up playing Firebirds, but I love that sound because it was like in between a Strat and, and a Gibson, you know. Yes. Uh, but, you know, uh, Peter Green sound, which I didn't discover till later, and Kossoff sound, which I didn't discover till later. All those Les Paul sounds, you, you get this great sound by not turning the guitar all the way up. Right, like you're talking about, and uh, if you play Gibson guitars, especially if they're two pickup guitars, there's so many options just by keeping the volume almost all the way up, or one of the volumes almost all the way up, changing the pickup. You know, it's all about trying to find the balance between the pickups and discovering these different sounds. I love that that warm sound that right. uh, Gibson's offered way back then. Um, and somewhere along the line, just realized that a lot of my favorite sounds were from backing the guitar down and having the app cranked, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I always, you know, I always tell people the volume and tone knobs on a Les Paul or a 335 were put there for a reason. They yeah. actually, they actually do something. You don't have to leave them all the way up. Just like kind of like a, a bright switch on a fender amp. You know, you could turn it. You could turn the bright switch off, and it does a different thing. You know, you don't have to leave it on. Tell me about. You know, I was reading. Like, I didn't know. I've known you for a long time. I didn't know you were a member of the Nighthawks for two weeks. Uh, two, okay, short uh, a short tenure. But it was like I was like because it's like always been one of my favorite East Coast DC based blues bands you know they were they were pretty traditional chicago blues yeah uh i love those guys i saw them a few times in Asheville when i was a teenager right. and they were just the ultimate bar band blues band you know yeah. they they just had a thing that was undeniable yeah uh, I, I really dug them a lot and then when i was living in nashville in the 80s uh I became friends with uh, this guy, Kenny Greenberg, who you, you probably know Kenny. Yeah. And Kenny was kind enough to give me a lot of work that he couldn't take. Uh, he was getting so much work. He was kind of the, the top gun in Nashville at that time for playing rock or blues. Right. And, he still uh, is. He still yeah. he, I mean, he works every day. Yeah. And he's, he's a wonderful player. And, and we became friends. But uh, he called me one day and said, hey, uh, I get a lot of overflow stuff, and I was curious if you would want to to be the guy that I call when I can't do something. And I was like, absolutely, I, I'm honored that you would think of me, you know. And so one of the things he called me about was, uh, you want to do this tour with the Nighthawks? And I love the Nighthawks. Right. And he's like, it'll be uh, it's with Jimmy Hall. And so Jimmy Hall was singing and playing sax and harmonica. 
And uh, in addition to Mark Winter, the great harmonica player in, in the Nighthawks, 12 shows in 14 days. Right. Uh, <laughs> in a van. Yep. And we, uh, uh, Jimmy and I shared a room together. And so we became really good friends over that two weeks. But right. it was just, it was a wonderful experience. It's after Jimmy Thackeray had left the band and they were just using different guitar players. I think I was in between Elvin Bishop and Stuart Smith. Right. Uh, and I remember, uh, I think maybe Stuart was before me because I had heard, uh, I'd heard some tapes to learn some of the material of Stuart playing guitar. And I wasn't familiar with his playing. I was like, wow, who is that guy? They were kind of like the East Coast, John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. All the all the great guitar players have gone through there, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and, and uh, you know, it was such a fun time. And I, I still I love those guys. I haven't seen them in a while, but I, I just consider uh, consider them to be my dear friends. You know, it's uh, um, it's 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 amazing. Sometimes you go back and like, like you know, it was just you no know, necessity was mother of invention. Hey, you want to do this gig with the Nighthawks? It was before you know after Alvin Bishop and Jimmy Thackeray, and before you know it, like these bands have these great lineages of you know guitar all the guitar players that have been in and out. Tell me about the Garth Brooks. Not a lot of people. Not a lot of people know that you wrote were involved in writing two big songs for him, two of a kind, working on a full house from from the album No Fences. When that record hit, and it kept, I think it was number one for like, I don't know, 13, 13 years or something. I mean, it's like, it was like crazy. Like, you're like, oh my God, did, did you did you think he was going to explode like that that big when, when you were writing those tunes? Well, uh, we wrote Two of a Kind Working for a Full House. I, I think, I'm thinking it was 87. I, I'm not positive, but... He had he had already uh, done his first record, right. which was pretty successful, yes. but nobody knew he was going to explode into the superstardom thing. Yeah. I remember uh, I, I co-wrote that song with uh, Bobby Boyd and, and Dennis Robbins, and I remember uh, getting a call that Garth Brooks had uh, recorded Two of a Kind. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I've heard of him. But meaning right. if he's on my radar, he must be pretty successful because I didn't know much about country music and who, right. you know, who the players were. But I had heard of him because he had reached that status. But again, he had not reached that level that he, he would eventually. Uh, and it was just such a godsend for all of us uh, for him to do that song. It was a huge hit. It was in uh, all of his DVDs. It was it was. Uh, Included on every live record he did, right. every box set. Uh, the, I think he, there was a book called "One of a Kind Working on a Full House." Uh, it was just the gift that keeps on giving, you know. And, and uh, I knew when we wrote it. I, I remember saying, "This is a hit song." Right. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be a hit song. It means yeah. it should be a hit song. Right. You right. Know, and, and I've been. Uh, I've had my hand in writing you know, dozens of country songs through the years, several of which have been recorded, one by George Jones, which was a, a, a huge uh, deal to me. But very seldom does one of them make me think, this is a, a hit, this this song it really is a hit. Right. And, uh, I, but I was so honored when it when it happened and it blew up, uh, it was like, wow, what, what a cool thing. You know? That's a yeah, and it's you know it's a it's a little known fact you know about you because you know I was watching the Garth Brooks documentary on Netflix and you know all of my spare time now that I have all <laughs> I'm available um, and and you know and I was I was thinking about, you know Warren wrote some songs I went you know I know of course of course you go down the rabbit hole and you know I mean it's that that period of time when you wrote you know a song that I, that I covered Heartaches for Nichols and and you know you were doing them you know all of that stuff, I mean, like, you know, the T Tales of Ordinary Man, it's one of my favorite records you've ever been involved with, and, you know, that, that time you were in Nashville working, you know, um, when you move from Asheville to Nashville, which I've driven that road a few times, yeah, you yeah. know, and um, when you move there, you know, what was, what were your goals? Did you, did you just want to, did you just want to get in the, get in the game and start working? Did, did, 
did you have an opportunity there that kind of said, hey, I should really move here and get, you know, get involved in the community? What was the impetus? Well, it was the closest music town to Asheville. Right. Uh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself at that time to think about moving to New York, which I eventually would, uh, or, or LA, which I, I've never lived in. Nashville was five hours away by car. So I felt like, you know, if things get too bad. I can always find my way home, right. which I did quite frequently. Uh, you know, I, my, at the time I thought that I wanted to be a, a studio musician. So I started doing that. I think I was uh, 24 when I started trying to kick around and, and try to get my foot in the door. And as anything uh, takes time, it, it took you know time to kind of meet people and move up through the ranks and stuff. Um, and the, the more I got better at it and, and the more work I started getting, then eventually I was like, you know what, this is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, I don't, this is not really what I want to do. Right. So a few years into it, I, I started having second thoughts about my, my choice of being a studio musician. It just, especially in Nashville, it takes all the personality out of your playing. You have to become a chameleon to the extent that it really doesn't matter what you think it only matters what the artist and and the producer think and usually that coincides with uh just play the melody yeah, right, <laughs> right. and you're, you're you're just hired to press down on the strings yeah and, you know and whatever on the sheet is that's 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 the way it is you know and, and and that was a wonderful experience for me to learn all that stuff you know i didn't I didn't know the number system when I moved to Nashville and, and learning that was a, a big thing for me and, and being able to learn from and around all these 18 session musicians was priceless. It was, it was a wonderful education. And a lot of those folks are fantastic musicians. Yeah. But at the same time, 90% of them would kill to do what you and I do. Right. They just they found themselves early on with families and uh, not being able to go on the road and not being able to have such a, a, a unsteady, um, uncertain future. You know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, when when you're young you know, I was 24, I was, you know, I, sky was the limit of whatever is going to happen. I, let's do it. But these guys had had, had families and and mortgages and. Uh, in some cases, alimony and child support. Alimony, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's by uh, it's my guys, Reese Wines and Michael Rhodes, who you know, um, they use when we're in the studio recording the records, they use the number system. And Kenny's, Kenny Greenberg played on my record, and, and you know, and they'll sit there, and I, you know, it's just pretty, my stuff isn't too involved, you know, chord wise. And they'll sit there, and the, the way they speak to each other, like, that, that's a flat six, and no, I think that's a, a sharp this, and blah, blah, blah. And I go, guys, it's an A flat. Just <laughs> A flat. It's so easy. Like, stay on A flat until it goes to the four. You know, I mean, it's like, you just, it, and it's, it, it, I'm like, uh, just play it for me. Tell me, like, getting called for a Dickie Bet session. Because that's how you kind of, you kind of started to get ingratiated into the, the Allman Brothers camp. Well, that, that's the transition, really, for me from going to being a, a studio musician to the rest of my life. Um, I had befriended this, this uh, woman, Kim Morrison, who is a great singer that lives in the Nashville area. And sh she would get called to put together background vocal groups for, right. for albums. And she, she and I did some blues gigs together and, uh, we sang some harmony together and she called me one day and she said, you know, you're a really good harmony singer and your voice blends great with, uh, with other voices. What, what would you think about getting into the background vocal scene a little bit? And she's like, it actually pays a lot better than uh, what you're currently doing. Right, right. And I was like, I, I, I don't know much about it, but I'm willing to learn. And she said, well, I'll, I'll show you the ropes and, uh, so she kind of gave me a crash course in singing background. Right. And she would call me and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm putting together a, a group to go sing on this album and go sing on that album. 
and and the pay was good and and it was great practice and great stamina uh, uh, training great training for pitch for how to uh, adapt to someone else's pitch all right. these things that for a singer are, are valuable things and we would sometimes sing 10 hours a day yeah. it, which was amazing training uh, but most importantly I, I was learning a lot and and starting to make better money than I had been making so one day she called me and said I, I'm putting together a group to sing on this Dick, Dickie Betts record. Right. Do you want to uh, sing on it? I said, absolutely. I had met Dickie several times and his bass player, Marty Prevett, uh, was kind of behind the scenes pushing me to get in, pushing for me to get in Dickie's band. Right. And he had said to Dickie, this guy, Warren, you know him. Uh, I think he would be the guy. Yeah. And uh, so Dickie, came to this club called Bogies to hear me play guitar in this blues band one night. And somewhere in the same time frame, I don't remember which was first, I showed up uh, in the studio to sing background on his record. Yeah. And he was, he, I walked in and, he's a, and he like kind of looked at him. He's like, what are you doing here? I said, I got called to sing harmony. And he goes, oh, you got a guitar? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> He's, and he kind of laughed and said, well, good. I didn't want to hear you play anyway. So he, we were just joking around. But it kind of lit this spark, you know. He was doing this record uh, that was, in the long run, he would decide was too Nashville, too country mm -hmm. for him. Right. So he called me up a couple of weeks later or something and said, uh, hey, that that record that you sang on, I scrapped it. Right. Uh he said it was it just wasn't me. It, it was too too slick, too overproduced, uh, too corny Nashville. He said, uh, let's get together and write some songs and make a rock and roll record. Wow. And that was the beginning uh, of our relationship, really. Uh, we started writing, uh, and Mike Lawler, who had been in the Allman Brothers uh, in the 80s, had uh, was producing some demos. He had a studio in his basement, and me right. and... Dickie and Mike Lawler, the three of us would go and make demos with a drum machine and a and a keyboard yeah. and, and the two of us, you know. Uh, and so it, it turned into me joining his band and making Pattern Disruptive, and eventually that would lead to me joining the Allman Brothers. Wow. I mean, it's like, it, it, there's always that moment of, like, zen, you know. It's like, it, it's like when you go... Oh my God! I listened to these Allman Brothers records. Now I got to learn them, and and now I'm a member. You know, because you, yeah. you what in '89 the Almonds reformed as the Allman Brothers. Was it '89 yeah. or '90? Yeah, and I had done shows with him '86, '87, '88, uh, a lot in '88. Um, but it was it was kind of a bizarre circumstance because. You mentioned Tales of Ordinary Madness. Yeah. I had simultaneously, I had, had uh, hired a manager and was starting to try to get a record deal on my own and was making demos for that. And so when Dickie called me, it was at the same time that I was starting to get interest through some record companies uh, uh, to, to be a solo artist. And I said, look, I got I to be up front with you. I'm a huge fan. I'm extremely honored that you're calling me. But I also have this other stuff going on that's really important to me. So there's a chance that I may not be able to work it out, which is uh, a drag because I really want to make this happen. Right. And so he kind of helped me out with that and introduced me to the people at, at, at Epic where, that he was signed to and, and some stuff like that. And I wound up uh, signing with Epic in the long run. I didn't make my first record there, but I, I had a deal there for a while. Uh, but I, I kind of postponed Tales of Ordinary Madness. I was going to make that record in 88 right, and right. wound up not making it until 92, and it came out in 93. But it was initially it was to make Dickie's record, join his band. We had written a bunch of songs together. And then I thought, okay, that's, that's done. The tour was over. I'm going to start working on my record. And then... I got the call. We're putting the Allman Brothers together, uh, and we want you to join. And I, I was completely shocked because 
at that time, every time someone brought up an Allman Brothers reunion, the answer was always no. Right. Dickie right. and Greg both always said, that's never going to happen. Right. So I, I took them at their word. And so I was as shocked as anybody else when it actually happened. Yeah, it's like the Eagles, the uh, the hell freezes over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it's frozen. It's pretty cold. Yeah, pretty much. You know, did you know Ella Woody before the Allman Brothers, or did they did they find him separately? Were you guys were you, were you guys on each other's radar at that point? Only a little. I had met him through Artemis Pyle. Uh, mm -hmm. Artemis and Woody were good friends, and Woody had been in Artemis's band quite a bit. And there was one night at the Exit Inn when uh, it, they were doing a show there and for the encore asked me to get up and jam. And right. so Woody and I jammed and Sam Stafford was playing guitar. Uh, and that was the first time we played together. And, you know, it was playing a shuffle or a Skinner tune or something. Right. So it, it wasn't any uh, major occurrence in any of our lives. It was just a bar jam, right. you know. But I remember hearing the way him and Artemis and Sam played together and thinking, well, there's something really cool there. But I, I didn't really know till quite a ways down the road uh, what a great player he really was. Right. So when you, 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 you join the Almonds, Epic uh, wants to make a record. Michael Kaplan, we, we both know Michael Kaplan. Um, they, make, they make a record seven turns, I believe. Yes. And you get to work with Tom Dowd. And, but when I listened to that record, and subsequently the, 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 the two live, um, the, the live records that go along with it, you know, um, I, I hear, your, I hear your, 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 your stamp on a lot of that music. You know, how involved in the writing were you at that point, trying to get Dickie and, and, and Greg and all these, all these, you know, people that have had, you know, issues in the past. Was it? Were you the glue that that kind of like, okay, guys, let's get focused and go in this direction? Well, I uh, was in a unique position because I was writing with Dickie at that time. We had written quite a few tunes together, mm -hmm. and we had done his record together, which was a really cool record at that time period. And then coincidentally, uh, Greg had recorded Just Before the Bullets Fly, which was the, my song that was the title track from his latest record. So now I was writing for both camps, which kind of right. gave, me, gave me street cred in right. both camps, you know. Uh, and and Dickie uh, was always open to, uh, especially myself and Johnny Neal, contrib contributing a lot to the arrangements and to the way uh, the music progressed and stuff. So even the stuff that I wasn't involved in writing, uh, it was always every man for himself, whatever, whatever you have to offer, let's hear about it. We were, it was a real band in that way. The Dickie Betts band was that way. And the Allman Brothers band was that way in the way that it wasn't new guys versus old guys. It was everybody realizing that the best the music can be is if we treat it like a band. Right. And exactly. So uh, you know, we we spent a lot of time uh, adding to and taking away from uh, existing songs. You know, we would rehearse, and and that's what real bands do, and 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 always have done. So it was uh, it was an interesting opportunity for me. Uh, and of course, I ran with it to whatever extent they wanted my involvement. I was happy to to be involved. Yeah, it's, it's you know because I hear it. I mean, like especially on you know, songs like like nobody knows and you know they they covered the the, the almonds did soul shine before you know that that yeah. was your that was your that was your tune it was on an almond record yeah. and it now I mean it's that's your signature tune you know that that you know government mules done and you've done you know and and wonderful version is um, off the live in Austin um, uh, 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 DVD that um you know from your solo band which yeah, i right. absolutely loved and yeah. so you know it's it's when did you get the idea like there must have there must have been a, a a moment where you're like okay i'm in this gigantic band both in size and in stature and and i'm going man i really wish we could just play trio you know when when did when did the idea for government mule 
start? Was it you and you, you and Alan and and because I know you you knew Matt, you know Matt Apps is, is you know for years at that point. When did you guys say, okay, you know what? We see a gap here where we can come out here and and kick ass as a power trio, and nobody's doing it because at the time nobody was doing that kind of stuff. And, and that was really the impetus behind uh, doing what would turn into Government Mule. Um, Woody and myself and Greg Allman, the three of us shared a tour bus on Allman Brothers Tours. Right. And on our bus, we listened to music all the time. On the other bus, which was the rest of the band, uh, they weren't really listening to, to music. If they were, they had headphones on. And, and we were definitely the fun bus. Right. So one day... Uh, we're listening to Cream or Hendrix Experience or Band of Gypsies. I, I don't remember what. And Woody says, you, you know, like, like you just said, nobody's doing this anymore. The whole, like, rock improv power trio thing has, has gone by the wayside. And we're like, yeah. And he goes, you know, me and you and the right drummer could do that. And That's I said, Matt Apps, he, he, Matt just popped into my head. I had been playing with him in Dickie's band. And he was perfect uh, for that kind of stuff, you know. <clears throat> he, um, his love of Ginger Baker and and, uh, and Mitch Mitchell and you know even Tony Williams and and all the different stuff where you're required to take up a lot of space. Right. right. His love and appreciation of that kind of drumming was was fantastic. And so I mentioned him to Woody, and Woody said, "Oh, I love Matt." Why don't we get together sometime and jam? So right. we called Matt. He was living in L.A. Uh, he was chomping at the bit because we had kind of put the Dickie Best Band on hold to do the Allman Brothers. Right. So Matt was just kind of doing local stuff. So we said, hey, we're going to be in L.A. coming up at such and such a time. He had a gig at this little club called the Captain's Cabin. Right. And. He said, why don't you guys come down and jam? So we did. And I think for the second set or something, Woody and I went down and, and we just jammed as a trio. And it far exceeded our expectations. The way he and Woody played together was fantastic. Right. And it, we were all just smiling uh, the whole time we were playing. Even though it was really intense, it was just like a breath of fresh air. So we knew at that time we needed to, to start a band. It was intended to just be a side project. There was right. no intent on leaving the Allman Brothers. But in hindsight, the Allman Brothers band was kind of starting to unravel in the way that the original members weren't getting along again. Right. And uh, <clears throat> you had mentioned, uh, was I the glue earlier? Uh, it had reached a point where Dickie would come to me and say, hey, man, I can't talk to Greg. Can you talk to him about this? Blah, blah, blah. And then Greg would come to me and say, hey, man, I, I can't talk to Dickie. Would you talk to him about this? And it was right. like, push me, pull you. Right. I was in the middle of all that and, and trying to maintain this Switzerland kind of vibe, you know. Uh, but you could you could feel it starting to unravel. And, and uh there was no writing, no rehearsing, no plans to make another record. Right. And, and then we did six weeks without Dickie at, uh, at one point. And so you could just feel it kind of losing steam. And, and on the other hand was Government Mule loving what we were doing, uh, still right. not thinking that we were going to leave the Allman Brothers, but it was becoming more and more of a priority. Right. And, you know, that kind of thing is exhausting. I've been in situations where you're the intermediary of two people that just could easily have a conversation. And it's at first you go, OK, I'll, I'll help, help you guys work it out. And you try to get people. To get, but over a period of time, it just becomes exhausting. Absolutely. You know, yeah. You, you left the Almonds in 97 and, and, and headed out as government meal. I remember opening up for you guys in 94 with I was in Bloodline at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. And still to this day, I would, it's Al Green and that Government Mule show are the two best shows I've ever seen. In wow. 
and Al Green at the um, I opened up that show too. Al Green at the in Burlington, Vermont, at a, at the the museum. They used to set up a stage outside, and uh-huh. I remember the promoter asking me, to, "Can I play an hour and a half?" Because Al only does like fifty five minutes. I'm like, I'm not an hour and a half. But Al came up and did the best fifty five minutes. And you guys at Toad's Place, you know, one of the things I always love about Government Mule was is you can identify the sound in. 10 seconds. It's the, it's just the way everything blends together, even, even as a four piece, you know, and, and it's, it's such a great, you know, catalog. Did you ever think that the quote side project would ever go with you now in what, 25 years, 20, 27 years that the band's (laughs) together? No, I I absolutely never thought that we, we didn't think we were going to make a second record. Uh, At that time, we were just going to make this one um, experimental, fun record. We thought it was going to be super low budget. Right. And uh, we had not thought beyond that because, you know, Woody and I were doing uh, about half a year with the Allman Brothers, but it gave us the whole half of the year to do what we wanted to do, you know. Right. Um, you know, I, I talk about this. I think we're going to re-release the, the first Government Mule record for the 25th anniversary right. and I wrote some liner notes uh, for it. And one of the things that I talk about in there, which I, I, I'm going to mention here, I'm probably spoiling it, but there was this record that I had been listening to. It was uh, Pat Metheny and Roy Haynes and, and Dave Holland. It was right. a record called Question Answer. And they talked about in an interview or in the liner notes or something, how they went into the studio, they, played each song one time. They didn't play anything twice. They didn't listen back to anything. They just played a bunch of songs and left. And then a couple of weeks later or something, Matheny went back in the studio and listened and went, oh, this is good. This is good. Right. And and that's the way they compiled that record. And I was so intrigued with that concept. That's what we were originally going to do for the first Government Mule record. Right. But it was going to be even more steeped in open improv than it was. Yeah. The the, the problem, or maybe the solution, uh, was eventually we had to go through the process of getting a record deal and, and a studio and a producer and all this stuff. So by the time all that stuff happened, I'd written a bunch of songs that kind of uh, were written with the sound of, of us and mine. Right. So it turned into much more of a song-oriented record than it originally was going to be. Right. Uh, I think if we'd have had the opportunity to make that record at that moment, it would have been just open improv with yeah. very little exception. You know. Right. Right. You the the uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The first Mule records came out in Capricorn. Uh, no, the first one came out on Relativity. Relativity. Right. Right. Relativity had Joe Satriani right. and Steve Vai. Right. And Our Lady Peace and Adrian Leg yeah. and a bunch of guitar type stuff. Right. Uh, but then they folded their rock department. So the second Government Mule record came out on Capricorn. Capricorn. It's, it's funny, too, to think about labels and, and in the terms of Warren Haynes, like Tales of Ordinary Man has come down to Megaforce Records. I remember this. I still I think I still have my copy of Megaforce. If you if you look at the roster, I just interviewed Scott Ian from Anthrax. The Megaforce Records was like the pre preeminent thrash metal um, label, you know, of the yeah. 1980s. So when I think of thrash metal, I think of Warren Haynes. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> well, they also had King's X. Exactly. Right, uh, right. Which was one of the reasons I considered them. Uh, they, they approached me about signing there, and I was like, I, I don't belong on this kind of label. Right. But they, uh, Johnny Z and Marsha, his wife, their plan at that time was to try and diversify and spread out into doing a lot of different sort of stuff. And they thought they wanted to use me as the guinea pig to kind of do that, uh, make a much more uh, straight ahead, melodic type of, uh, of record, you know. Um, and I was reluctant at first, but then when I, when I met with them, they were very passionate about doing it and they were more excited really 
than just about anybody I had met with, you know. Right. And I think uh, had things gone a little differently in the music business at that time, that record would have stood a lot better chance than it than it did. There were so many things at that time that were changing, uh, and Megaforce being one of those things, right. that it didn't really get the, the shot that it deserved. But I do credit John and Marsha as, as being very passionate about right. what they were doing. And, and so it was it was not as odd a choice as it would seem on paper, you know, and I, I like the, the King's X stuff and I thought, well, I'll be in good company there. Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of the other stuff was stuff that I didn't care for. But, you know, they also, uh, they told me that, uh, Johnny told me that his biggest regret was that they uh, they got the offer to sign Nirvana and turned right. it down. Wow. Yeah, they, they passed on Nirvana. What's the old story? Alligator Records passed on Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and Robert Cray at the, within like a year. <laughs> Oops. What do you yeah. think? I, mean, I, I got a couple. I just got a couple more questions for you because I, I you're an entrepreneur. You, 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 you take the music and the business seriously. What do you, what are the pros and cons in the last 30 years? Music business 1990, music business 2020. The good, what do you miss about 1990 and what do you think is better about 2020? Well, uh, the current budgets, uh, I always tell everybody, if you look at the business now as compared to then, just subtract a zero. Right. <laughs> if you used to sell a million records, now you sell 100,000. Right. If you used to sell 100,000, now you sell 10,000. Right. If your budget was three hundred thousand, now it's thirty thousand. Right. Uh, it, it's just that's kind of the way things have gone. That's the bad news. Uh, I remember hearing uh, 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 Don Felder from the Eagles saying in an interview that when the Eagles all did their solo records, he was disappointed because the budget for his was only seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Yeah, right. And I think you could make 10 records for that now. Yes. And buy a bunch of gear. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, uh, you know, but the, the good news now, uh, you have to always look on the bright side. People can own their music. People can uh, can kind of maintain their rights to publishing uh, merchandise, Internet rights. All these things that, uh, with a major label, you may have to give up uh, right. these days, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it, the music business kind of reached a point where you, people were having to market themselves anyway. So if you're going to market yourself, you might as well own what you're marketing. Right. Uh, right. The the hard part is that now where there may be, I don't know, I don't know the numbers, but when when you and I were buying records a long time ago, there was X amount of new releases per month. Yes. Now you multiply that times a thousand. I, I don't know. There's just so much product out there yes. that yes. just to poke your head through and, and make a dent is really hard. Yeah. Uh, yes. a, a booking agent won't sign you. Uh, a manager won't sign you. Uh Nobody will sign you unless you've already created your own niche. Right. You know, w when I was growing up, if you had a good product, you could get signed. Right. And there was such a thing as artist development. If you signed to A&M Records, you could guarantee that you were going to make a first record, a second record, a third record. And by the time you made your third record, hopefully things would be working and uh, they would continue picking up your options, you know. Nowadays, if you sign with a major label, if your debut doesn't happen, you're finished. Yeah. Uh, but the good news is you can make your own records and put them out yourself. The bad news is you have to do all the work. You have to do all the promotion. And also, it means that we're never going to hear a Steely Dan Asia or a Fleetwood Mac Rumors or a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon. We're never going to hear a record like that ever again yeah. un unless something goes back to the time that people could spend that that amount of time and money and energy making records yeah 
you know, I, I, you know, now like I was, you know, hear from people like like they don't they don't even look at me. They look at the they look at your Instagram page. How many followers do you have? Yeah. How, how you know your social media, your this and everything, and you're like, well, do, do they even ask the question? Are you any good? You know, it's it's you know, the, I think you know, I think the some of the pros of 2020 is that the the people that are on the fringes, meaning that they, they don't really fit into a box that they could easily market, yeah. have a, have an opportunity <clears throat> to to find an audience. I think I think the cons of 2020 is that I think it's given away for free too much. You know, it's like That's right. yeah. we're we're in a streaming business. We're in a now it's a singles business. You know, not an album. You know, and even if you do make an album, it just gets it just gets jumbled into playlists and 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 you know things like that. And it's just you know, it becomes becomes it, the art of it of record making goes away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and think about like Dark Side of the Moon. If you uh, if you just downloaded one song from that album. Right. Some of them are even kind of transitions to another song. Right. Uh, but e even any song from that record, it's not going to really tell you what the entirety of the record was about. You right. know, uh, and, and I, I agree with what you're saying. It, it, it gives young artists and, and bands an opportunity to, to not be in a box. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be categorized. But uh, and it also... The fact that you can be anywhere in the world and access music from all over the world, that's great. You can be in Iceland and hear what's going on in Mississippi or vice versa. Right, and it's all that's there. Because when I was growing up, the regional impact was enormous. You know, a, a lot of what, you know, we were influenced by all the records we were buying and listening to, but we were also influenced by the local heroes that were playing yeah. their asses off. and. Yeah. And all of us that learned how to play together, we all kind of had similar voices because we taught each other and it was coming from this region and everybody from that region kind of had a similar voice, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Last question. And I know this, is, this may be an oddball question, but uh, I try to ask questions that are not in the normal lanes of, of an interview. Did you, did you meet Johnny Carson? And if you did, what was he like? Okay. Yes, we uh, we did the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson twice with the Allman Brothers. Right. Uh, he was great. Uh, he seemed to really enjoy the Allman Brothers music and having us as a guest. Right. Much more so than even the average. He made a point of wanting to have his picture taken with us. Wow. Which, which his people said he never did. And if you see the pictures, uh, I think I think he's between me and Dickie, or, or between Greg and Dickie, or something. He's got his arm around somebody. He looks like a cardboard cutout. He looks right. like he's not there, but it is really him. It's probably really yeah. him. Uh, but the, you know, he was a drummer, and so the whole time we were playing, he's over at the desk with pencils, drumming along, and and nodding his head and smiling. You know, we. Uh, it was that was a huge experience for me because we were not only able to play with Doc Severinsen and that orchestra, we did uh, two songs that Dickie and I wrote together, two instrumentals. Uh, one was True Gravity from the Seven Turns record. Right. Uh, we did that with Doc and the band. Wow. And, and then we did Kind of Bird, the instrumental that was on Shades of Two Worlds that Dickie and I wrote in honor of Charlie Parker. Right. And we did that with Doc and the band. And in both cases, Tom Dowd was with us, yeah, and yeah. he wrote out horn charts for the band. And so we got to hear these tunes with a horn section for the first time ever. Doc would take a solo. There was one part where I'm playing slide, and Doc's playing uh, trumpet, and we're bouncing off of each other. It was, it was an enormous thing for me. Uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. And those those Tonight Show guys, those were some chart reading dudes. Man. Oh, man. one take. It yes, was just... absolutely, and it's... fantastic uh, musicians. You know, I, I remember growing up and think. You know, there's a side of it that is corny when you compare it to uh, what you're in, into at the time, but those guys were fantastic musicians.
Yeah, they were great. And that's, you know, it's one of the things it's like I, I always look back and, you know, even the experiences I've had and, and and you can never take them for granted because it's like it's just a snapshot in time. You know what I mean? Like, you know, being on a Letterman or a Johnny Carson or, or just or just all those things. You know, I mean, I, I remember, you know, getting to shake Willie Dixon's hand as a kid. I had no idea. You know, I play with John Lee Hooker when I was 14. I, I met you when I was 14 or 15, you know, and, and you just go, this is, you know, it's life changing stuff. Warren, I can't thank you enough, man. I, I, I not only am I, you know, a huge fan and admirer of, of all your music. Um, you know, I'm honored to call you my friend and, and, and we've known each other for a long time. Thank, thanks for being on this, this, this crazy little web show called live at Nerdville. Cause you know, my pleasure. Get, do you have time for one little addendum? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll say goodbye again after this. I know this is more about music and for musicians, but that Johnny Carson show that we did, right? Don Rickles was on it. Uh -huh. And so I also got to meet Don Rickles, who was on with a quote on all day. He yeah. never turned it off. He right. was constantly uh, giving somebody shit all right. day long, starting <laughs> with the moment that I walked into NBC in a suede fringe jacket. Don right. Rickles, Don Rickles walks up to me and goes, "You with the Almond Brothers, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Yeah, I knew either that or you rode with Custer." <laughs> and, and, and that's the way the day began. Right. <laughs> and the way the day ended was me and Alan Woody leaving in a van, leaving the NBC uh, parking lot. We're turning right. And Don Rickles in a limousine turning left, hanging out the window, yelling at us, <laughs> making, making the 8,000th joke of the day. Right. It, it was something I'll never, ever, ever forget. That's, I mean, that's classic. I mean, you know, my manager's dad, um, Roy, Roy's father, managed Rick Rickles for, you know, 35, 40 years. And, and the one time I met him, it just, it, you know, he was in his late seventies when I met him. It, it literally, again, it just, you just don't know where that energy comes from. He just had, he just had it, you know, and imagine meeting him, you know, I couldn't imagine this was 2008. I couldn't imagine him meeting 20 years prior. Cause it just was just, it was fantastic. And the one thing that I, uh, we picked up on that he does, he would come in the dressing room and hang out and he would always want to get a photo op with whoever was there. And he had this thing that we later realized was one of his things. Right, He would get a picture, and right before they snap it, he would say something funny. So everybody was laughing in the picture, right? Right. So he comes into our dressing room, and we're hanging out. And he, uh, he said, let's get a picture. So the photographer comes over. He puts his arm around Greg. And right as they're about to snap the picture, he goes, hey, Greg, I, I just talked to uh, Cher. It looks like I'm going to get some of your furniture. <laughs> That's great. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but, it, it, you know, those, those times are priceless. And, and uh, I'm with you. I, I played with Willie Dixon one time uh, and watched an amazing rehearsal one time uh, between him and Greg and Richie Hayward and George Porter and Johnny Winter and Charlie Musselwhite and Bill Payne. Uh, that was just an experience I'll, I'll never, ever forget. It's, you know, it's one of those things. It's, you just, it's their life changing moments, you know, and you just never know when they're going to occur. You just have to put yourself in that position for it to occur. You know, it's like, you know, and you and I, it, it, you know, I call them Forrest Gump moments. They, uh, we, you and I both had more of these moments than we could count, and we have to be grateful. Uh, yeah. And like you say, some of them at the time, maybe you didn't even know how heavy it was, you yeah. know. But it, it's it's all it's all stuff that changes your life. Yeah, my 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 encounter with Clarence Gatemount Brown was an interesting one. And yeah, it involved. It, it involved a a a Smith and Weston looking device that turned out to be a lighter, <laughs> a, a cigarette, and 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 a compliment that that I'll never forget. It was um, he, he, I was I was the day I met Danny Gatton and him, 
and it was at this little blues festival in upstate New York, and he pulls this, you know, like, I, we're waiting in line just to say goodbye to him, right? You know, like, thanks thanks for the hospitality. And he's signing autographs for $5 each, right? This is 1988, <laughs> right? You know, and it was like $5 autographs, and, and my parents and I go up to him, and he goes, he goes um, you know, my dad goes, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Brown, thank you very much for having my son and blah, blah, blah. And it was really great to meet you and stuff like that. And, and my dad says, hey, you know, what do you think? Is he pretty good? You know, just making conversation. And he looks at, and, he, and he just doesn't say anything. Pulls a cigarette out, puts it in his mouth. He's got the cowboy hat on. And he pulls out a gun looking thing. And he lights the cigarette. He pulls the trigger, but it's all done in slow motion. You know what I mean? And he, yeah. he pulls the trigger. And he, takes a couple of puffs and it's like straight out of a movie. I, I can still see this and he goes, he's good, but he's fat and he's white. <laughs> <laughs> Just as on cue, you go, you couldn't write this. And, and I, I tell this to my friends and, and people go, you must have been devastated. Go, devastated. It was one of the greatest stories I have. I mean, it's just, you couldn't have, you couldn't have, you can't write that stuff. Warren, man, thank you so much for being on. I love you. you, you Great. Sorry, we have to do it on Skype. We're on the. Well, we're we're you know going what? back ten years. Yeah, but we'll be hopefully in person together soon enough. So we'll just keep thinking that way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all. Till next time. All right. Thank thanks, Joe.